morning we're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which is one of the biblical masterpieces, if not the biblical masterpiece around the supremacy of Jesus Christ. One commentator talked about this passage in this way, that it's the Mount Everest among the peaks of Revelation concerning the person of Jesus Christ. But I want us to make sure that we see those verses in its immediate context, because verses 1 through 4 of Philippians 2, Paul is urging a oneness of heart among the Philippian people. And he said the way to get to that point is to take on the disposition or attitude of humility. Humility is the foundation for oneness of heart. And to sort of close his argument, to clinch it, he turns to the person of Jesus Christ This attitude that should be yours, the same, is that of Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Philippians 2. We'll start at verse 1, and then we'll focus in on verses 6, uh, excuse me, verses 5 through 11. Let's read responsively as is our custom. I might say this morning before I even read this, you might want to have your Bibles out on your lap today uh, to open up the ones in the pews, because we're going to look at this text in a very careful fashion, so you might as well get prepared and, and do that right now. So feel free if, uh, to grab a Bible in front of you or open the ones that you have brought with you. Philippians 2, 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before I take us into this theologically rich, precisely worded text, I want to frame our discussion around some consideration of larger issues to which this text could apply to our lives. Uh, I'm going to be a professor in a moment, going deeply into this text. I know that's how many of you view me anyhow. Uh, Yes, I've got that feedback. Um, My concern, though, is that we look at this preexistent picture of Christ and the humility that he displays, and then we walk out here saying, isn't that nice? What a wonderful thing Christ did for us, and not really have it change our life. I mean, we have a great admiration for Mother Teresa, don't we? But not many of us want to really live like her. (laughs) We admire her, but don't want to live like her. We can admire Jesus and not necessarily want to live like him. So come with me on some considerations of what the humility of Jesus might mean in a couple of areas of our life. 
How might the humility of Jesus influence our ambitions, our view of success and greatness uh, in this world? How might even the humility of Jesus, and here's a controversial topic, be injected into our understanding of political life? Wow. Now, on this first issue of aspiration and motivation, do we truly aspire to the humility of Jesus as a distinguishing characteristic of following him? Or does this quality, frankly, get washed out by the competing cultural value that actually rewards arrogance, power, and wealth? Perhaps the icon of arrogance, power, and wealth of our society is Donald Trump. Donald Trump, and I've heard him say this, actually believes that we all want to live his life. That we would trade places with him in a heartbeat if we could. That's the way he views what, the way he's living. In other words, uh, if we could have that capacity for the billion-dollar deal and the adrenaline rush that would come with it, we would love to be able to do that. Or if we would, could immortalize our lives with a name on a building like the Trump Towers. Or wouldn't it be great to have so much power that, over people that we could say to them, you're fired. Is Donald Trump right? Well, James and John, two of the inner circle of Jesus, apparently had Donald Trump's view of greatness. They, you might recall, came to Jesus on the sly, asking that when he came into power, if they could sit on the right and left hand of Jesus. Now, they assumed as the Messiah that he was going to be ascending to power any moment, and they wanted to get their request in early. And so their thought mindset was, boy, we could really have made it if we could be seen there at the center of power. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Everybody would be looking at us and seeing how worthwhile we are. Now, when the other ten heard about this sort of surreptitious end run, what was their response? Scripture says that they were indignant over what had taken place. Certainly, they had violated teamwork, (laughs) broke ranks with the other ten James and John had. But maybe they were indignant because they hadn't thought of it first. Maybe that was the reason. Well, into this very teachable moment, Jesus flips on its head our understanding of greatness and power. And he says to his followers, he who wants to be great must be the servant of all. He who wants to be great must be the servant of all. Do we buy this? Do we hear these words of Jesus on nice platitudes on a Sunday morning, and yet when we're right back out in the world, we are James and John, we are wanting to be like Donald Trump, following what he says is the sign of greatness? When we think of greatness, what really does motivate us? Is it financial reward and climbing to the top of our profession? In our minds, when have we made it? In the Christian community, we oftentimes hear people say, oh, I've been so blessed by God. What does that mean, to be blessed by God? Oftentimes it comes with the following. Well, I have this wonderfully appointed home, and my kids are turning out decently. Well, what does it mean that the kids are turning out decently? Well, it means that they are qualifying for one of the best educational institutions to go to and and that they are on a path for a lucrative career uh, in their life. But what if these same kids who went to these wonderful educational institutions came to us after they graduated and said, "Uh, Mom and Dad, no, I'm planning to serve God by being a teacher in the inner city schools 
and I'm going to be making poverty wages. Or I'm planning to support, raise my own support, and go to a Christian mission in, in Africa. Would our response be as parents, well, I sure hope they'll soon wake up and get a real job. <laughs> I, I didn't pay for that when they went to college. When I tell people that my daughter is a pediatric rheumatologist on the faculty of a major university, the usual response is something like, oh, you must be so proud. Frankly, I am. I can sort of bask in the reflected glory of her success. But what if she had chosen a different route and it wasn't quite as prestigious? Would I still feel like there was success there? Or if we were to move into the realm of politics, what place does humility have? Is that an oxymoron? (laughs) Is politics just assumed to be the place where raw power rules the day? When it comes to elections, it's a winner-takes-all atmosphere. Vince Lombardi was famous for saying, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Or we also say something like, nice guys finish last. We have no time for losers in politics. Running for office and losing because you stood for your principles may get you admiration in your family, but not much beyond. We just don't remember the losers, do we? And in terms of worldly success, except for the resurrection, Jesus was kind of a loser. He was on the bottom. Our president is criticized by some for going around the world apologizing for the mistakes the United States has made as if admitting an error is a sign of weakness. But when humility and principle mean that we first must confess honestly if we are to be a godly nation? Scripture tells us that God dwells in the smallest heart that is willing to come before him in rapt honesty. When have we seen our political leaders acting like King David? who confessed this before a nation. The sacrifices acceptable to God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Or as David said, against you and you only have I sinned and that's what is evil in thy sight. What place does humility have in public life, in political life? Now, it's at this point I'm, I'm fearful of losing you. <laughs> Write down those things that you want to send me in emails. Side them side. Because my concern this morning is that I don't want us just to admire Jesus. I want us to grapple with what does it mean to follow the humility of Jesus into our weekday life. And so I'm compelled to ask myself the question this morning, do I believe that humility and true greatness is to be the servant of all? This is the very mark of the one we claim to follow. Paul tells us, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Or in Romans 12 too, Paul says similarly, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Well, what's a renewed mind look like? It looks like Jesus. And so this leads us back to our text this morning around the supremacy of Jesus Christ, this masterpiece of the Apostle Paul that I want us to dig into and and look at fairly carefully this morning. 
It is thought that this section of Scripture, verses 5 through 11, is really an early hymn of the church. That Paul has taken what has been sung in worship services in the church and brought it right into our text of Scripture. And because of that, I'm going to divide this message into three stanzas. <laughs> there are three verses to this particular hymn that I think we cause us to follow it. First stanza is all about renunciation. That though Jesus was eternally God, he renounced his privileges and rights that come with being God to become one with us. And then the second stanza is about humiliation, that that took him all the way to the cross, even death on a cross. But because of his faithfulness, his willingness to choose that death, God exalted him, exaltation, and raised him as a name above every name, that at every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So let's follow this pattern this morning. Let's follow this rhythm uh, that this hymn lays out. So the first stanza, we read the following. Who, being the very nature of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. I'm going to look at this kind of phrase by phrase here. Who being in very nature God. The New International Version could also be translated here, though he was in the form of God. And Paul's very precise here with the word that he chooses for was or being, meaning eternally, Jesus was, always will be, God. That's what he's trying to convey in this. And then we go on to the next phrase, being in the very nature, in the form of God. Again, the New International Version is trying to take words that we use and understand and, and put them in a form that we will f- understand well. And so instead of the word form, it uses the word nature, being in the very nature of God, because form sounds like that God could be a reasonable facsimile, that a copy, a highly skilled forgery, that Jesus was not the real thing. But in the Greek language, and we'll do a little bit of technical work here, there are two words for form. There is the word schema, which has to do with outward changeable form, from which we get the word scheme in the Greek language. It's that which is the outward representation. That's not the word that's used here. Uh, Outward changeable form is kind of like the chameleon that can blend in with the flora and fauna. Just outwardly it changes. But the word that Paul uses here is the word morphe, from which we get the word morph. And it has to do with the inner essence of someone that never does change. In other words, Jesus possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God. He had that nature eternally. And then we go on to a controversial phrase. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now this is a a controversial word here. Um, One way to translate that is the way that the Jehovah's Witnesses translate this here. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus was eternally God. There was a time when he was not God, that he was a created being. And so the way this phrase is translated in the new uh, world translation of their official Bible is that Jesus gave no consideration to a seizure, namely that he should be equal to God. He did not grasp at something that wasn't his did not seize an attempt to try to be God. That's not the best translation here. Better translation is, 
that he did not consider equality with God something to clutch hold of or cling to himself and be like a child clinging to a teddy bear. He did not hold of the privileges and rights of being God. And maybe even a better translation would be, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. Wow. Did not take advantage of being equal to God. I think of the time when Jesus might want to have taken advantage of being God. Think of that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers come out, torches in hand, to light up the night to arrest Jesus. Judas comes to him, kisses him, so that the soldiers will know who it is that they are to bring into custody. Peter is there with him, takes out a sword and lops off the ear of a servant. And Jesus quickly says to Peter, put your sword away, touches that ear of the servant and heals him. And then in this context says the following, that he is, do not think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. If there was ever a time that Clark Kent wanted to go into the phone booth and change into a Superman outfit (laughs) and walk out right in the presence of those standing there, this would have been Jesus' moment to do this, right? I mean, if I were Jesus in that moment, I would have said, I'm sorry, Father, I can't go on with this any longer. I refuse to take this indignity. They must know who I am. What divine constraint there was for Jesus in this moment. But the scripture goes on to say, but he made himself nothing, or that he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. We call this in uh, our theological discussion the kenosis, because that word is kanao in the Greek, made himself nothing. Emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? Of his divinity? No. (laughs) Can God ever cease to be God? Can he give up that role? No, but I think what he emptied himself here was his rights and privileges of being God. What a long distance he came to us. When I think of this long journey, I think of a a story that a a missionary in the Cameroons told. An American missionary was there, and she described to those that she was serving the American practice of giving gifts at Christmas. And she said, we do it because we see it as an expression of our joy to God and our love for our fellow believers. Well, on Christmas morning, a young boy showed up at her home and had a Christmas gift for her. And the Christmas gift was a seashell. And of course, the immediate response to the, of the missionary was, well, where'd you get that? And uh, the young boy said, well, at the seashore, of course. And the missionary said, well, that's 30 miles away. And the boy replied, long journey, part of gift. Long journey, part of gift. Jesus took that long journey. It was part of the gift. He renounced his privileges and status of divinity. And this leads us, I think, to our next stanza on humiliation. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. His humiliation as the God-man expressed himself in taking on the very nature 
the very form of a servant. Remember our two Greek words here? Schema means outward changeable form. Morphe means this is the consistent with the inner nature of who one is. The word used here is morphe. Consistent with divinity is Jesus taking up servanthood. This is who God is. God is a God who serves. That's central to his identity. Jesus at one time in his ministry decided to make a big public moment of this, didn't he? As the disciples were coming into the upper room on the night before Jesus was betrayed and was sent off to a trial, the disciples were still arguing among themselves. Who's the greatest among us? They were still focused on each other and pushing themselves forward. And it's in the midst of this moment that Jesus takes up the role of a household slave, bends down before them, and begins to wash their feet. None of the disciples would do that because that was beneath their dignity, but it was not beneath the dignity of Jesus. This was such a low role in that society that even a Jewish slave would not wash someone's feet. Only a Gentile slave or women and children would wash feet. But it was not beneath the dignity of Jesus because it was consistent with the identity of who he was. And so he tells his disciples, I've done this so that you would have an example of what servanthood is all about. Now, in our text that the greatest act of servanthood is the cross, Jesus models here, I think, servanthood as little acts of kindness and thoughtfulness. Servanthood is kind of like being aware of what's going on in the space around us. I'll give you a couple of examples. When you come into worship Sunday morning, really be helpful if people move to the center aisle <laughs> and loud space on the outside for people who come later to fit in. Our ushers would kiss you if you did that. How about in terms of parking, an act of servanthood? For those of us who are able-bodied, maybe we would intentionally park a little further away from the building so those who are more challenged physically could get closer to the building. We just thought about these things. How about if you show up to a meeting at church and you decide to come early simply because, you know, the person leading that meeting may need some help setting up some chairs and making sure some things are distributed. And you say, well, I'll stay afterwards and make sure the room is put back in place. Little acts of kindness that translate servanthood into action. The word for servant uh, that is used in this text here is a very powerful word. We have two words for servanthood in Greek, too. <laughs> two words for form, two words for servant. The one is diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. We have deacons within the church who serve one another. But the other word here is the word doulos, which actually has to do with a household slave, that the slave is completely under the direction of the master. Jesus describes himself here, or Paul does, uh, to, uh, he is a doulos, a servant, a slave. And then our next phrase is being made in the human likeness, being found in the appearance or form of man. Here's again, we have to change the words. Appearance of man, this is the word schema, not the word morphe. The outward appearance of Jesus is as a man, but it's a temporary appearance because he's going to be going back to his father. And then it says that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. 
became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Here's the amazing point here. Jesus chose death. We have no choice about it, do we? Death is going to hunt us down. (laughs) We don't even have any choice about how we are going to die. Scripture says Jesus chose to die. He had control over whether he was going to die or not. We read in John 10, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. In other words, it wasn't because political forces got out of control and Jesus got caught in the vortex of these powers and therefore was dragged off to the cross. No, Jesus chose the manner, means, and timing of his death. Wow. I guess many of you have seen the movie Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. I've seen the movie three times, but I still haven't seen all the movie. There are parts of that movie that I cannot even watch. (laughs) It is so gruesome. The 39 lashes across Jesus' back, I have to turn away from that. I can't watch some of the scenes of the brutality of the crucifixion. But there was one moment in the movie that deeply touched me around the crucifixion. Jesus was being stretched out on the cross by his Roman executioners. And it shows Jesus in that moment moving his body into position. As if to say, you cannot take my life from me. I give it of my own accord. Wow. And I think it's that giving of his life of his own accord that woos worship from us, woos affection from our own hearts. You have a quote on the front of your bulletins of the hymn, And Can It Be? And we have it on the screen here. And I'd like to just have us read these words together. We're going to be singing them in a moment. Because it's... The response of worship to what Christ has done. Charles Wesley's great hymn. Let's say this together. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his shame, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou by God shouldst die for me? He left his Father's throne above, So free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? When the Soviet Union was under communist control, they would periodically send KGB agents into churches on a Sunday morning. And one agent was struck by the devotion of a woman kissing the feet of the life-size carving of Jesus on the cross. And so this KGB agent said, Grandmother, uh, are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general secretary of the great communist party? I love this woman's response. Well, why, of course, but only if you crucify him first. (laughs) Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Henry now, and I think, has caught the implications here of the downward mobility of Jesus like this. Jesus' compassion is characterized by a downward pull. That's what disturbs us. We cannot even think about ourselves in terms other than an upward pull, an upward mobility in which we strive for better lives, higher salaries, more prestigious positions. Thus, we are deeply disturbed by a God who embodies downward mobility. 
Instead of striving for higher position, more power, more influence, Jesus moves, as Karl Barth says, from heights to depth, from victory to defeat, from riches to poverty, from triumph to suffering, from life to death. Jesus' whole life and mission involved accepting powerlessness and revealing that this powerlessness is the limitless love of God. Isn't this the power of the universe? That weakness of Jesus giving his life. And because of his willingness to do that, God raised him to the heights. And this is our third stanza, which we'll conclude with this morning. Therefore God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, and at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's really a political statement. The Caesar that reigned at the time Jesus was born was a man by the name of Caesar Augustus, the first Roman ruler that united the Roman Empire. He saw himself as what? The august one. (laughs) The one who was Lord over all. He was to be called Curios, which is the Greek word for Lord. Caesar is Lord. And then this rabbi comes on the scene in the first century and begins to talk about the kingdom of God. And he is crucified, but then he's raised again from the dead. And lo and behold, his followers begin to talk about him as Lord, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when they are asked to talk about Caesar as Lord and bow down before him, they refuse to do that. And they subvert the Roman Empire by saying that there is a higher authority than Caesar. We will not bow down to him. Abraham Kuyper, the famous Dutch theologian, former prime minister of the Netherlands, is well known for his saying, in the total expanse of human life, there is not a single square inch of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, that is mine. And Jesus said himself, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How much authority is that? Not one square inch over which Jesus does not reign. And so it says, one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, all history is moving towards the feet of Jesus. Everything is moving in the direction that Jesus Christ will be declared Lord of all by everyone. For some, they will be dragged kicking and screaming into the presence of Christ because They will be forced to bend at the knee of Jesus because when they see Jesus, their heart and mind and eyes turn to hatred and anger because they do not love this one, but they have turned away from him. But will we love his appearing? When we see Jesus face to face, will that be the fulfillment of the joy of our life? If Jesus were to walk into this room today, would we gladly drop on our knees and confess with the Apostle Thomas, my Lord and my God, may it be so. Let's pray together. Lord, we've, we've covered a lot of territory this morning. We've asked ourselves some questions. Do we really believe in your servant posture? 
does it affect our ambitions, our desires for success? Does it inform our understanding of true greatness? Where does it fit into our political and public life to be humble? Well, we see the model of Jesus here. And we ask that uh, you would give us his mind and heart. That we would walk his way of your renunciation, humiliation, and then exaltation. Knowing that uh, as we serve you in quiet ways, that you see and will be the one that exalts our life as a result. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.